So um, one of the things the Lord has been very much laying on my heart and on the heart of a number of the leaders is, um, man, JosGen is exploding in growth. Um, in the last few months, we've grown by over by about 10%. We're about 6,500 committed members. When I say 6,500 people, I mean people that own home groups and devoted. But the challenges we've had in the last few months, about 600, probably 650 people now, that have joined, that's like one out of 10. And that's in a few months. And that means that a lot of people are joining us, which we're stoked about, excited about. But with that come people with a whole lot of different mindsets about what church is, what Christianity is. And in some ways, if we're not careful, even those that have been with us for a while, we can slowly drift from what we're supposed to be and not be built properly in the way God intends us to be built. And that means we would miss the purposes of God. And I would never, ever want to sacrifice his presence and his will for numbers. For us, it's always going to be about how do we as God's people align ourselves with the king and work our way in. And so I want to dig into a preach that I'm hoping will mess with your heads and mess with your hearts. It's a bit of a meaty one, so if you, uh, and I'm going to be touching on a subject that some of you might wobble with, some of you might struggle with, because it's so foreign to what's being taught in churches today, although it wasn't foreign to the early church. And, um, and so I want to just say, this is a piece of steak I'm about to dish up. So if you're gagging on it, because it's a bit much for where you're at, because of whatever, work it through with your leaders, okay? <laughs> By the way, did I see some PE guys over here? Seth Verena, Ant Meek, legends from Port Elizabeth, part of the partnering churches. I don't know who else, but wonderful to have you guys here. They are absolute stars serving with us in the nations of the world in partnering churches up there. It's cool to be part of one big family, eh? Lovely to have you guys with us. And then, um, so one of the things that often as we grow up in the Christian church today is we, we hear a lot of different lenses in the Bible about how we are in relation to God. And often some in every culture become very popular, often because it meets the needs of a culture. And so we would be in a generation that's very commonly hears, if, uh, a le- what would be some of the lenses that would be commonly taught in churches today? Uh, that, w- In other words, when the Bible talks about us and our relationship to God, what are some of the primary things that are portrayed? And I would argue probably one of the strongest would be that we are sons of God. Would you agree with me? Children of God. That we are co-heirs with him. That we are members of his body. He's not actually taught that much. It is something that we teach a lot. That we join together. But these are all kind of ways that God tries to show us the different aspects of our relationship to him. And we need to see all of them. The challenge is if we don't see all of them properly in perspective, we only latch on to some that we like, we end up with a distorted, broken lens and then a distorted, broken Christianity. That our Christianity doesn't reflect the God of the Bible. It doesn't reflect the Bible. It doesn't reflect the ways of God. And so the plumb line puts up against the wall and it's like this wall fails the test. It has to get broken down and rebuilt. And so for some of us today, we're going to get broken down and rebuilt. And I want to ask you to stick with me. Uh, don't get lost too quickly. I will qualify everything that I'm saying very, very well. But I want to talk about a subject which is not taught a lot in the church, and it's the fact that we are slaves of God. That if you're genuinely a Christian, if you're properly saved, that you are actually 
you, you understand and see yourself as a son, yes, as a co-heir, yes, as members of his body, yes. But probably the one of the most important ones that we need to get right, because it is the one I think emphasized the most in the Bible, is that we are slaves. And I haven't heard a lot of worship songs about... We, we seem to shy away from that. And so I want us to dig in. Let's start in Romans 6, verse 22. And I want to dig into what this means. I'm going to take a while laying a foundation. So stick with me because the things I do at the start might seem like I'm at a Bible school. But those things are the only things I'm going to ram through your heart in the end. So don't get lost. Stick with me. Where's I? Romans 6, 22. I'm looking, where's my preach? Now I can't see it. Okay, let me move over here. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God. <laughs> the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. This is really, in some ways, in the book of Romans, the gospel of grace, is a packaging of what it means to be a Christian. You've been set free from sin and slavery to sin, because, and I'll look just now how sin does enslave us. But now that you've been set free from sin, you've now become a slave to God. <laughs> and the result of that is what it means to be saved. The benefit is holiness. And the result of that is eternal life. In other words, the foundation of this thing is freedom from sin, slavery to God, and then there's some benefits. Eternal life being one of the biggest ones. But the other one being that once I become a slave to God, my life intrinsically changes. I'm not who I was. And, um, and so I get the benefit of holiness in this life as well. Does this, you see that? So again, we've emphasized sons a lot, but we haven't emphasized this. We've emphasized faith and, you know, but actually, we haven't emphasized this, and this is something that needs to be emphasized because you're going to see with me, it's emphasized a lot in our Bibles. So by way of illustration, sonship is taught a lot, that we're sons of God through faith. And if I don't ask you how many times is the concept of sonship, that I'm a child of God, that I'm a son of God, brought about, and I wanted to do a quick comparison between sons and slaves, just to give you an idea of what I'm saying, that I'm not, I'm not thumb-sucking this. So how many times do you think the concept of sonship comes through in the Bible, New Testament? Old Testament, hardly at all, but in the New Testament. Okay, so we called sons in the Bible 16 times in the New Testament. 15 times we called children. And 50 times, God is called our Father. So you've got a total of 98 times that this concept of us being children or sons and daughters of God is kind of spoken of in the New Testament. Old Testament's only mentioned about twice for Israel. It's a kind of a concept that was birthed into the New Testament. Okay, so how many times do you think the concept of slave, us being slaves to God is mentioned in the Bible? The word is doulos. I'll show you just now that it means slave and always means slave. Um, it's used 127 times. And the, the, the corresponding word for doulos is karios in Greek. And karios, literally direct translation, means master of a slave. So when you say, Jesus, you are Lord, that word, every time you say Lord in, in the Greek, it's karios. It means he's my master and I'm his slave. Did you know that? We don't know that. We, we think Lord is kind of like, yeah, you're God, you, you're the king of all. But actually it means you are 
my Lord. You are my master. I belong to you. And that word is used 680 times. And it's always used of a master with a slave. So the total, and there's actually a few I left out, which we could look at, like, um, I've forgotten the other Greek word now. It is despotes, which is another word for that. We won't go there. Just on those two words, 807 times. Which means 98 to 807, eight times more, the Bible emphasizes that we're slaves to God than it does that we are sons of God. I would ask you, is that in your theology the weight of how things work? Do you see yourself primarily as a slave of God or do you see yourself as a son of God? And you need to see yourself as a son because it's there. But I think the weight here needs to be emphasized a little bit more on the slavery side and very few Christians see themselves as slaves of God and I want to dig into what that looks like I want to show you I want to show you why sometimes we miss it and one of the reasons why we do miss it is because of modern Bible translations and I what I'm about to do I I want to say this there is a lot of heresy in the church today when people do what I'm about to do run I mean that. I don't, I, I don't think I've ever gone against some of the key translations, but I'm going to show you what I'm saying. It is in the Bible. It is in a number of translations. But I want to show you one of the struggles that Bible translators have had with the word slave. Uh, and so what they've done, because slavery is kind of a bad word. Would you agree with me? I mean, slavery is like a swear word. It's a terrible thing. So how can God use this concept of slavery in our relationship to him, when slavery's got such a, it's a terrible thing, let's be honest. Even in the Bible, it's a terrible thing, and we'll look at that just now. So um, one of the things you'll find is, so when Bible translators are translating from Greek, in this case, Greek to English, they've got to grapple with, okay, how are people going to hear this? And the ESV, which is one of my favorite translations, it's actually English Standard Version, it's quite a good translation. And you can Google this, I actually had it on my phone yesterday, the, the, the ESV committee, in other words, the scholars that are now going to translate the Bible from Greek to English, they actually, have, you can Google it, the ESV debating doulos or slavery and servant, just, you'll find it, it's, it'll be the first thing that pops up on Google. And you'll actually see there's a committee meeting where the, the guys that are translating the Bible say, what are we going to do about this word doulos? And I'm paraphrasing now. Because it's a word that's got bad, it means slave. But if we put the word slave in the Bible, we're going to put people off so badly because it's got such a bad rap that they're just going to shut down from Christianity. So what are we going to do? And they decide, and you'll see it in the video, they decide to go, okay, we're going to try and soften the word. And we're going to use the word servant rather than slave because servant kind of isn't such a bad word. And so the only time they'll use the word slave is when it's very clearly, unequivocally, you can't get around it. Uh, for example, you've got a man called Onesimus, uh, uh, and the letter of Philemon is written about the slave called Onesimus, and he's a slave. And so there, the translators will translate it slave. And in some of the translations, like the one we looked at now, where it's quite clear you bought, you set free from sin, the concept is slavery, they will keep it the word slave. But what they do then is they change the word doulos, slavery or slave to mean servant and that's become so common today that if you go and google the word doulos you'll probably find the first seven or eight things will say slave 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 but then you'll start to see mean servant slave servant slave because that thinking is so prevailed now that even your lexicons which are basically things that you would use to try and see what the greek says have actually shifted 
And so what I want to do is I want to show you, I want to show you how, how wrong that is, because I think it's wrong. I don't think we should ever change the Bible. I want to show you that what I'm saying is in a lot of Bible translations. So I'm not, when, today this is our bad heresies taught. The Bible says the, the word is this. But actually, the word could mean in the Greek this, that, and the next thing. And then guys form bad theology. When you're reading a book and a guy starts doing that, burn the book. And normally, what I'm doing, you should burn this preach. But a lot of Bibles do translate it the way I do. And I'm going to show you with very clear evidence that I am not, I'm not make, making this stuff up. This is, uh, this is mainstream this is proper theologians, proper Greek scholars will say the things I'm saying, not some left-wing attempt at theologians. Okay, so again, slavery, jumping into it, is a terrible word, and I want to give you some of the difficulties with the word. In Exodus 21.16, we actually see what God says about slavery. It says, anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. Slave traders. It's a terrible thing. God says when you see a slave trader in the old covenant, you would kill the man because you should not take a person who is free and distort them out of the image of God and make them a slave. In 1 Timothy 1.10, we won't turn there. The Bible speaks about slave traders will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so the Bible's got some bad things to say about slave traders, and then God comes and calls us slave. So you kind of think, okay, how does this work? Because this kind of is a little bit hard to, to understand and process. Uh, and what we need to realize here and is when we see God using the word slave, we need to understand what does he mean. He doesn't mean that. He doesn't mean forcing people, snatching someone, kidnapping them, and making them a person without rights. When Israel brought about slavery, they actually had, they did have slavery. It's in the Bible. And slavery was, was actually taught, it, it, God is very clear about how it would work. And so here's how it would work. I need, I need two volunteers. Okay, you two come up here. Come stand on stage with me. All right. So when God gave Israel, the, his promised people, when they went into the promised land, he said to everyone, I'm going to give to each one of you a portion of land. This is your inheritance. Your children will inherit that land. And their children will inherit that land. Because everyone in my, my kingdom will have a place of their own. Okay? Then he said, and he knew that sometimes people are going to mess up. Or things are going to happen. Crisis, floods, droughts, bad management. And some people are going to potentially not be able to keep that land. They will get into financial situations. And so here's two, two Israelites that I'm going to use. And this one is farming really well. He's looking after his land. He's just, he's, just, he's just successful in everything that he does. And this one, <laughs> this one is not doing a good job. He's waking up late. He's, he's not working well. The, the land's not producing. And at some point, he comes to the point that his family is starving and he can't keep the land. Now, God wants that inheritance to be kept. So normally what would happen is he would lose it. Somebody else would have it. And, and his children would never have an inheritance. So God came up with this idea. He said, okay, there's no state. The, the people are the state in a sense. What I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce something to Israel, which was around them, slavery. But here's how it's going to work. You can buy him and buy his land. Okay. So you've got to pay his debts off. And then he becomes your slave. There's some rules to this. 
There's some rules to this. You have to treat him, and you'll see in the Bible, you have to treat him as a human being with dignity. You have to treat him well. You, you can't just beat him for any reason. You, you, you can't just, you've got to treat him well. And the, the point is this. This guy doesn't know how to do it well, so this one does. So for seven years, that land is farmed by this one, but this becomes his servant. And in that seven years, the hope is that he will learn the lessons that he needs to learn as a slave. And then after seven years, God says, okay, now the debt is paid. Whatever you paid for that is, is canceled. He's free. And that land is reverted back to him. And so he's able to, hopefully he's learned his lesson and he can now survive. And actually his family survived that seven years where they would have died. And actually his children will now have an inheritance. Okay, thank you. See, here's the thing. Here's the thing. When God comes to us, the Bible says that we were slaves to sin. And we've messed up our lives. There's no one righteous. No, not even one. All have turned away and together become worthless. So we are bound. We look just now at how we become slaves to sin. We don't actually know God's ways. So what God does is he buys us as slaves. And he keeps us. And in our case, it's not seven years. It's more like 70 years. He keeps us for our time on the earth as slaves. And then after being mentored by God and being in his house as a slave for our whole life, we'll look at that in detail just now, God says when he comes, he'll restore all things. And then our position changes from slave to co-heir. And we will sit on a throne with him and rule and reign with him. The point is God's going to teach us in our time on the earth how his house works. And the way he does that is he buys us off the fields of slavery, brings us into his family, and he treats us as slaves until we die. And if you're a faithful slave at the end of your life, you will rule and reign with him. If you overcome, if you remain in him, you will overcome and you will rule and reign in him, with him on that last day. Now, that's the concept. So now when I use the word slave, you've got a framework to start to go, okay. Okay, it's not kidnapping people in Africa or wherever, because that happened all over the world. And let me just say this. When the letters were written, the New Testament, one out of two people in the Roman world were slaves. So people knew, when God used the word doulos, which I'm going to show you now always means slave, it, everyone knew what he was talking about. And so I, I have a problem with, I don't like changing the Bible for any reason. I, I think I want to keep it as close to the original as I can. Because today the word servant means something very different to slave. Would you agree with me? So servant kind of means this. I'll, I'll quote the Encarta Dictionary. An employee who serves somebody else, especially an employer, hired to do household or to be personal attendant to somebody. In other words, hey, I need some money. I need a job. I'll work for you as a servant. I'll manage some part of your household as long as there's benefit for me. And I can decide, oh, I don't think I want to do that because I'm a servant, I'm not a slave. So the problem with that is when the word servant is introduced to us, a lot of our Christianity looks like that. We come to God and we think, okay, I'll be your servant, but it's on my terms. I'll worship when I'm comfortable to worship. I'll give when it's comfortable for me to give. I will lay down my life, but it's kind of like, show me the benefit and I'll do it. 
And so you end up with a Christianity that is nominal and lukewarm and actually doesn't reflect the kingdom of God at all. And I would argue doesn't reflect Christianity at all. And so you'll end up with churches that are filled with people that sort of come when the weather's nice. They, they're not devoted to the master's house because we're servants. But actually, the primary language here is slave. And a slave is owned. He doesn't work for benefit. He works because he's owned. He's regarded as the property of the owner. He can't leave. We'll look at all these things in detail. And so I want to dig into this because it's important that we get this right. Now, I want to make some statements because, again, I'm saying I'm doing something that I shouldn't, that no one should do or we shouldn't do easily. So I want to show you um, that doulos always means slave. And then I'm going to build my case from there. Okay, are you with me? So stick with me. There's a lot of Greek words that the Bible uses for servant. Okay, we look at those. Then we look at doulos and we look at that in a bit of detail. And then we're going to say, okay, what does that mean for us as Christians? So stick with me. Here's some Greek words for servant. Pais. It's used one time in Matthew 8 verse 6. It's used one time in this context. Um, as in us being servants of God or a servant of another. Lord, he said, remember that a, a, a Roman came to Jesus and said, Lord, he said, my servant lies at home, paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Pais. It literally means young male servant. My servant lies at home. This is a good translation. My servant is at home, and Jesus healed the man. Do you remember the story? So here you've got a, and I'm just showing you words that could have been used by the Holy Spirit when he was trying to show us our relationship to God. Pais, it's only used once, Matthew 8, 6. Padiska is used 12 times. It means servant girl. It's a kind of equivalent of Pais, but now it's a servant girl. And in Matthew 26, 69, now Peter was sitting, I'll read it here. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, you too is Jesus the Galilean. And so remember the story, he's sitting around the fire, a servant girl. So now she's someone working for somebody else, but she's not a slave. She is a servant girl. You're seeing that there are words for servants. Terapon is used one time, Hebrews 3 verse 5. Moses was faithful as a servant, a therapon, in all God's house. Another word that we see, okay? Oiketes is used five times. Romans 14 means a hired person or can mean a slave, but it normally means a hired servant. Who are you to judge? Romans 14.4. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. In this case, it probably is meaning a slave because the word master gives you an indicator. But it, it can mean servant. Okay, so what do we learn? We've learned there's a lot of words the Holy Spirit could have used when he penned the Bible servants of God but he used the word primarily and it's it's the one that almost always used uh, sorry there's one more word forgive me um, stick with me don't get lost a word that you would all know hopefully one more word for servant diakonos are there deacons here show us where you are so you, your role in the church as deacons is actually basically you are the the picture of what this is but actually it's we all call to be servants of God it's used 29 times and Jesus uses it in 1 Matthew 20, verse 20, to show you how the word can be used as a servant. And it means servant. These guys serve voluntarily. They don't have to serve unless they understand the other one, that they actually are slaves, but that they serve us as servants. They're not slaves to us. They're servants to us, but they're slaves to God. But this one, uh, it, it, is, it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to be great among you, 
You've got it up? Shall be your servant, diakonos. Okay, so our, our heart posture is one. The greatest among us must have the heart of a servant. Now we dig into, I've actually one more, but I'll leave that one. You see, there's a couple of words that we could see for servant. Doulos. In total, doulos is used in its, it's got various forms, about 150 times. Philemon 15 and 16, I mentioned earlier, perhaps, could you put that up for me? I think you've got the scripture. Perhaps the reason, this is a young slave that escaped from um, a slave master, actually. And uh, that's punishable by death in Roman law. And Paul met the slave when he was running and led him to the Lord. But he actually also led the, the master to the Lord. And so he writes a letter because he's sending the servant back, the slave back. And he wants the slave to live and he wants him to be treated right. And so he writes here about a physical slave that's now going to go back to his master. And he says, perhaps the reason he separated from you for a while was that you might have him back for good. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. He's very dear to me, but even dearer to you. That word slave is doulos. In other words, receive him as a Christian brother. Paul's going to argue strongly for the man's life, um, that he would be received and loved, uh, and that the church would do that. And, and the amazing thing is in the church, early church, you actually had slaves and masters in the same church. Can you imagine that? Uh, and they would worship together in the early church. So now we're going to look at where the word is changed, and I want to show you why the change is wrong. I'm even going to use, I'm going to show you which Bible translations get it good and which ones don't get it good, and I'll show you, so I need to make my point here. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. This is where a lot of Bible translations change the word slave to servant, doulos. Paul, a doulos, a servant, the NIV says, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart by the gospel of God. Okay, so we've got the word doulos there in Greek. Now, the NIV translates as servant. I'll show you some others that do the same. Um, I want to argue that that word doulos never, ever means servant, ever. And I'm going to show you by quoting some of the best theological commentaries and Bibles and dictionaries that I can. These are not left-wing. These are mainstream. You go to Bible school. These are the ones. These are the classics. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. Have you got those? Uh, 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 awesome. I don't know if you can read it, but I can. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. And I'm going to quote from it. This is a mainstream theological. It says, ironically, the Greek language is at least half a dozen words that can mean servant. We've just, we've just seen that ourselves, okay? The word doulos is not one of them. Whenever it is used, both in the New Testament and in secular Greek literature, it always and only means slave. Now, normally when guys are trying to bend Scripture, they say, well, it could mean, could mean, I think it means. This is not doing that. This is always and only. Okay. The meaning is so unequivocal and self-contained that it is superfluous to give examples of the individual terms or to trace the history of the group. The emphasis is always on serving as a slave. Hence, we have a service which is not a matter of choice for the one who renders it, which he has to perform whether he likes it or not, because he is subject as a slave to an alien will, to the will of his owner. The term stresses the slave dependence upon his Lord. Okay, you see that? I'll give you a few more. The E.J. Goodspeed was professor of Greek at the University of Chicago in 1923 and 37. He's regarded still today as the Greek genius. And do you know what a lexicon is? How many of you know what a lexicon is? 
A lexicon, if you ever want to go see what the Greek word means or the Hebrew word, you'll open up a thing called a lexicon. And you'll have the Greek and then you'll have the English. And by pressing that word, you'll have the English corresponding word. So a lexicon, he was the guy that designed the lexicon. So you've got the founder of and any Bible, any teacher knows using lexicons all the time. He designed this. Regarded as a genius. Could you put that up, that quote? Okay, you've got the, that's, that's, a, that's the one. Okay. says this. I'm going to quote him. There is no need to trace the history of this word doulos. There is no need to discuss the meaning of this word. It has never meant anything in any usage but slave. Are you seeing? The, and I, and I, I need to say these are, these are some of those highly regarded men in the theological world. Many would argue the most authoritative lexicon, in other words, the, the, the book that every Bible school wants to go to, is called the, Ber, the Bauer, Amt, Gierich, and Danke <laughs> Bible Dictionary. You've got to go to serious school, uh, Bible school, to, to, and this, is, this would be highly, highly regarded. And it says the word undisputably means slave. It, it was, it's not debatable, it's not sometimes. It always and only means that I could quote... The Kittel Theological Dictionary in the New Testament, all the words in this doulos group serve either to describe the status of a slave or an attitude corresponding to that of a slave. Paul, and he actually quotes Romans, a slave for Jesus. I could quote the Septuagint, I could keep on and on and on. These are, you with me? So I think I've made my point. Let's look at some Bible translations. Because again, if I'm the only one saying that the word is so Romans 1, when, let's hear some Bible translations. And I'm sorry for the King James Version only, guys, because this one, King James gets it wrong. Romans 1, 1, the word servant is used by the King James Version, the ASV, the NRV, and the ESV. So they use the word servant, and I've told you why they use that word. Because the word is difficult for us to process. So the guys are thinking, how do we not lose people and so, so they, they, they're trying to, in some ways, kind of dumb down the gospel a little bit to us. Then some translators from other Bibles said, okay, but it's not servant. So we've got a problem here. So they came up with another concept. I want my two, my two, my two uh, guinea pigs up here. Here's what sometimes happens in Exodus 21. You actually saw what happens sometimes within this concept. After seven years, he's free. But sometimes God realized, and he put this down in Exodus 21, sometimes this guy realizes he is such an amazing master. I've been so well looked after. That actually, I'm pretty scared that if I go back to do it my way, I'm going to mess this up again. And so I want to choose to be a slave. And so what he would do is he would have his ear pierced with an awl, and it would be something he would choose. And he would say, I want to become a bond slave. And this is now, he's giving of himself as a volunteer and saying, I'm volunteering to become a slave. And so he would pierce his ear and then as long as he's alive, all that he has remains under his care and he's the master and he's the slave. He's not, not a servant, he's a slave. Thank you. So some translations said, okay, that kind of helps us because it feels like under the gospel, doesn't it? We choose to give our lives to Jesus. And so they came and came up with the word bond slave. And so some translations say bond slave or bond servant, okay? The problem with that is this. I know what they're trying to do. But the concept of a bond slave or servant was no longer around. When Israel went to captivity in the year 700, everyone lost their land. And there was no such thing when the New Testament was written. 
died out. But I understand why they're trying to do it. And so bond servant is used in these translations. I'm, I'm letting you know why they're saying bond servant. The NASB, the New King James Version, yay. The Derby and the Weymouth New Testament. But then some translate and say we can't change the Bible. And I'm a little bit shocked at the ones, because most of my favorite translations changed it. My not-so-favorite ones often held to the word properly. And so I'm going to show you which Bibles actually kept the word slave whenever it was. The Holman's Christian Standard Bible. Now, most of you don't even know these. The Jubilee Bible. The Lexham English Bible. The Common English Bible. The NET. The NAB. The New Living Translation. Can you believe it? I mean, that's actually a Bible that I'm actually enjoying more and more. If you want an easy read, but hey, they kept it. The, any, the, the, the West Bible, the J. Adams Bible, and this is the biggest shock of them all. The message. I mean, is that even a Bible? And they, they kept it, devoted slave. They actually were devoted slave. I'm like, wow, they even added to it. I'm not fond of the message. It's a paraphrase at best. But they got it. And then the New Testament recovery version, which is Watchman Nee's group, they called it slave. So I'm not alone when I say it always, there, a lot of Bibles, the, actually the majority of it, unfortunately, most of the better Bibles actually changed it. I'm letting you know why. But if we read it now through the lens that I've given you of what a slave is, what does that mean for us? And again, in the context, half the Roman world were slaves. So half the people reading their Bibles at least would have understood slavery. 1 Corinthians 7, and 23, this is a fascinating thing. Paul's trying to show this equality within the church, that even though they're slaves and masters, we need to see each other as equals because we're all made in the image of God. And so he says this, For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's freedman. Similarly, he who was a free man when he was called is Christ's slave. So which of you were slaves when you were called? No, actually, you weren't. You were all free. But now that you've come to Christ, you're Christ's slave. Then he says, you were bought at a price. And do you hear the language of slavery there? You weren't rented. You, weren't, you were bought at a price. Don't become slaves of men again if you can help it. Okay. So, and I, I love this picture because you've got this picture. And this is where we dig into, and I'm going to make a statement now. All men are slaves actually. But you weren't Christ's slaves. Because the Bible tells us quite clearly, listen to this. In John 8 verse 34, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. How many of you know that the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What, what the Bible is trying to tell us is this. Before Jesus was in your life, in my life, we were born, and here's an interesting the children of a slave is a, born into slavery. Adam sinned and something happened to humanity. Sin became our master. And so when your child is born and you hold them for the first time, every parent will know this, they're so beautiful and perfect until they get to like one and a half. <laughs> and suddenly they develop this will. It's like, you know, eat your peas. No. 
Don't pull your sister's hair. And, and what that is, is the slavery is sin starting to take a hold and making that individual their master. Okay. And so we grow up in slavery to sin. And that looks like as for young men, young women, when you start to fall in love, you become a slave to those things and very quickly become a slave to sexual immorality because your hands want to do things that they should not do. And as you give in to those emotions in the heat of the moment, what happens is those emotions feel like, does it not feel like they, they rule you? When you get bound to pornography, does it not feel like it rules you? When you get bound by anger or hatred or unforgiveness, someone hurts you and you respond, does it feel like it rules you? When you're driving home in a taxi or you're sitting in a long queue and a taxi pulls it in front of you, what happens? Does it feel like it rules you? You're like trying to hold it in. Like, I'm going to ram my car into the back of it. Like, if he didn't have a gun, I probably would. <laughs> and so what it is, is, what it is, is everyone who sins is a slave to sin, which means there's no person on the planet that is free. And slave, sin is a terrible slave master. Because what it does is it bends you and breaks you. It rules you terribly. And it breaks you out of the image of God until you begin to destroy. Your hatred begins to destroy your marriage. Your unforgiveness begins to destroy your life, your kids. Your desire for, for uh, even worth drives you in the marketplace. The point that you sacrifice your kids and yourself and your health. on the, And all of those things are slave masters ruling you. And they slowly kill you. They offer you the world, but they kill you. And so God walks around and he sees you and me. Slaves to sin. And he loves us. And what he does, and I, I want you to picture this. In some ways, you and I are standing on the slave market, bound to sin, owned by sin. Sin is my master. And God has mercy on me. and says, I don't want you who are created like that. Like a father, he sees us and he says, you've destroyed your life and you're destroying everything. There is no one righteous. No, not even one. All have sinned and together become worthless. And so what he does is he buys us. And we just read that. He buys us. There's a price for us. And the price for us is life. It's life. You can't buy us when it comes to eternal things with money. The price is life. And so in 1 Peter 1 verse 18 to 19, listen to this, Peter tells us how we were redeemed. It says, for we know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed. That word redeem is la true. It's literally the word used for buying someone with money off the slave market. You were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. You were born in sin. But you were bought with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish or defect. So the price for you and me was God himself. And the picture we have, the Christian message is this, that God saw us kicking and screaming in our sin, unable to save ourselves, and God loved us. And so what he did is he came to the earth, and here's the thing, God became a slave. In Philippians 2 verse 7, 
one of my favorite verses in the Bible, and it's translated wrong, which is so sad. Because the word here is doulos, talking about Jesus. Jesus made him equal with God, but he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a slave. Being made in human likeness, he became obedient. And so what Jesus did was he said, I need to redeem you. The only way I can redeem you is with life, and so I'll give my life. And so the, God sees you on the market and says, the price is high, but I love you. And so God comes and makes himself a slave and lives in full obedience to the Father. He says this, I only say and do what I see my heavenly Father saying and doing. There's nothing I do outside of his will. So the God who's equal with God makes himself a slave to redeem those that are under slavery so that we can be restored to God. And so God becomes a slave to save us. And then he bars us on the field of slavery and says, I will pay the price for them. The price is my life. And so you and I were redeemed. We were like true. We were redeemed from our sin and our bondage to sin by the blood of God himself. So now when Paul says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, you start to understand why. Because he realizes he had a terrible master when he was under sin. But now it's whose slave he is that he wants to boast about. Because he realizes what master has been so kind. What master has loved me enough to literally give himself to die to pay my price. Have you got that? So now you're either a slave to sin or a slave to God. There's only two options. There's no middle road. If you're not a slave to God, you're still a slave to sin. And so 1 Corinthians 6 verse, and let me just quickly before I go there. I'm going to quote a Jewish rabbi who's not a Christian. But he's, he's great because he's, he was the, the whole half of the last century. He was the chief Jewish uh, rabbi of the United States. And the spiritual leader of modern Jewish orthodoxy. And so I'm going to quote him because he's going to tell us what slavery is. And he's a highly regarded scholar. Okay. To be a slave of God, I don't think we've got it. It involves more than merely being his servant. Servants retain their independent status. They have only specific duties and limited responsibilities. Slaves, on the other hand, have no rights with respect to their owners. Because they are deemed the property of the latter. Jewish law operates on the principle that whatever a slave acquires automatically belongs to his owners. Means I don't own me. It means my wallet is not mine. It means my life is not mine. It means all that I have and all that I am is his. Now I would ask you, do you see yourself like that as a Christian? Honestly. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 to 20, the New Testament picks up on this. Do you not know that your bodies, a temple of the Holy Spirit, is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. <laughs> you are not your own. If you belong to you, you don't belong to him. In other words, when I come to God, I realize I was a slave to sin. And now 
I'm his slave. I have no rights. I yield to him. I, I make him my king, my lord, my master. And I belong to him. All that I have belongs to him. 1 Peter 2 verse 16 tells us to live as God's slaves. And now we look at the attitude of, that we should carry, carry. In Luke 17, 7 to 10, listen to this. Jesus is speaking. And um, he uses the word doulos. And he's talking about our relationship to God. And, and this is maybe good for us as Westerners to just hear. Suppose one of you has a doulos, a slave, plowing or looking after the sheep. What do you say to the servant or the slave when he comes in from the field? Come along, sit down and eat. So he's telling a story and he says this. So the slave has been out there all day. I've plowed it before. It's hard work. After a day of plowing, I come back. I want to sit down and I'm going to go, Master, I just want to eat myself. And Jesus but no, no slave does that. The first thing the slave does is he says, um, doesn't come down, sit, come down, along now and sit down and eat. Would he rather not say, prepare my supper? This is the master speaking. Get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. And after that, you may eat or drink. What he's effectively saying is this. Uh, okay, so you also, carry on. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy slaves. We have only done our duty. <laughs> In other words, most of us want like some kind of reward or one kind of, hey, I'm serving hard, but people need to notice. And actually our, our attitude should be, but I'm only a slave. You know, many people would say, Andrew, you know, they would want to honor Andrew and MC and woo. Actually, actually, I'm an unworthy slave. I'm just serving my master. We shouldn't do it for honor. We shouldn't do it for reward. We shouldn't get it for anything. We should do it because we're slaves, and that's our posture that we carry. But amazingly, our master is kind and gracious and full of mercy and good and loving. And so here's the thing. He tells us you should do it not to get well done or anything. But then on the last day, Jesus says, actually, those who have served him well will hear, well done, good and faithful. Guess which word he uses? Doulos. For those that serve him well on that last day when you die and come into his presence, the master himself will say to you, well done, my slave. You serve me well. He's kind, which means it's a joy to be his slave. But then the slave, looking at how this relationship works, exists to serve him and meet his needs. In Matthew 6.33 we read, as a Christian, this is your posture. Seek first the master's kingdom and his righteousness, and the master will meet your needs. You look after his house, and you look after your house. So how does that look? How does that look? Um, it, it looks like this. I, I, I'm not my own. I was bought at a price. So as a Christian, that means, and this is something we've walked through, Lord, I'm your slave. I have no rights. Should I marry? Should I have kids? Where do you want me to live? What do you want me to do? Because I seek your house first, not my own. And I remember as a young Christian being saved and you know, falling in love with Jesus and, and realizing my life is not my own. And so I thought I was going to die a bachelor. I was like, God, 
I'm going to be like Paul. I'm just going to serve you flat out. And then I remember, actually, the night that I prayed about getting married. I was surfing world champs at Nahoon Reef. Staying in my combi at the time because it was camping in, uh, in East London. And the one night I, I lay, in, lay in my little bed in the back of that combi and I, I said, Lord, I thought I was going to be single, but Lord, I think maybe if it's your will, I want to get married. I want a blonde. <laughs> I did. Blue-eyed. I kind of think I'd like her short. And she must age well. <laughs> and she must love you. Yeah, I left that part out. And, and I, said, I said, Lord, and I knew, I knew, you know when you have a conversation, I knew in that moment that the Lord said yes. I knew. I came back, Milani was a friend. I didn't know MC at all. I hadn't met her. Milani will remember that she's sitting in the front. I came back from that competition to Port Elizabeth. I saw Milani that same week and I said, I'm going to meet my wife within a month. I'll be married within a year. Because I knew my master had heard my prayer. I knew my master was going to give me. I knew. I met MC and I, I met MC in that week. I proposed to her in 10 days. And I was married. I would have married earlier, but her family sitting here wouldn't let me. So I had to wait 10 months. <laughs> How did it happen? Because, because I, look, the master, I asked the master and the master said yes. Then it was children. And the master said he wanted us to have a child. So we had a child. But our lives were his and are his. Now, that kind of thing, and I would ask you, do you, do you, is that part of your conversation? Is that how you think? Because that is how you should think. And, and here's the thing. Now that I'm married, I'm qualified as an elder because of the fact that I love my wife as Christ loves the church. So I, I hope I'm a good husband. But here's the thing. My wife is not my priority, nor am I hers. The master's house is our priority. My daughter, as much as I love her and our daughter, is not our priority. The master's house is our priority. Seek first his house and he'll look after our house. Which means we've lived so many birthdays we've missed because the church is something on and we would be, well, the master's house. I remember so when your daughter's small or a child's small, it's easy. You just, hey, your birthday's next week. But as they get, <laughs> but as they get older... Our daughter watched us make these decisions and amazingly learned as she grew up that the master's house was more important than our house. Which means right now, this morning, she was up. What time was she up? She was at church at 7.30 this morning on her own, serving in another part of the vineyard. Tonight, she'll spend the whole day out from us and tonight she will, on her own, this is her thing, we haven't pushed her, she will get to church early again because she'll be a part of a worship team tonight and serving in a part of the house because she knows the master's house comes first. And she does it out of love because she saw it modeled by his parents. The master's house always comes first. Even our marriage. MC reminded me the other day, uh, it was the hundred and, what day, 105th day of the year. What was it? You did your sums. 51 days of the first 101 days of this year, I was away from my home for 51 of those. Serving somewhere in the nations. I was in Russia. No one wants to go to Russia right now. I, I, I was told, the American embassy said, do not go into Russia. They're arresting Westerners for no reason and you're on your own. 
our insurance phoned us and said, if you go into Russia, you're on your own. We're not going to help you. I, to be honest, it was a part of me. I don't know if I really want to go to Siberia. Because that's where they send. And again, I'm going to preach the gospel in Russia, which is technically not legal. So if I get caught, in fact, I stayed in the house while I was in Russia. I stayed in the house of the son of someone who was in the KGB. His dad was KGB. Why? I, I don't think, whoa, I find the 412 guys. I'm like, guys, am I, should I go? Well, we can't tell you what to do. And I prayed. I prayed. I was like, Lord, I don't know what to do. This, this doesn't seem like a good idea right now. Can I not push this out till after the Ukraine war? But the master said, go. So we go. And if I was in Siberia now, then I'm in Siberia now. It's not my life. It's his. My family is not my priority. My career is not my priority. My master's house is my priority. And this is how the Bible speaks in 1 Corinthians 7.29. Listen to this. Some of you are going to get a bit shocked at this one. I mentioned that the priority is the master's house, not my family. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short, Paul says. From now on, those who have wives should live as though they had none. <laughs> Some of you are like, what? Is that in the Bible? That's in the Bible. You should live as though you, you had none. Now remember, every... Truth is qualified by the whole Bible. So the Bible also says you love your wife as Christ loves the church. But the priority is master's house. Without neglecting my wife. I'll give you another scripture on that. Paul carries on and he explains 1 Corinthians 7.35. And this is, should you have kids? Should you? I'm, not, I'm saying this for your own good. Not to restrict you, but that you may live life in a right way. In undivided devotion to the Lord. Is your life reflecting this? Is your family a priority? Are your kids, if your kids are a priority, then you serve them. And they will grow up to be idolatrous. You'll destroy your children. But if you keep the master's house first and don't neglect them, my daughter's not neglected. She loves, she's whole. But the master's house Comes first because we are not our own. You with me? And, and I love what Paul says. He's saying some of you shouldn't get married. What? If the man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. Oh, that's the other scripture. But he says, you're going to, married life is tough. She has needs. She needs me to listen sometimes. And take days of my life just nodding and listening. Whatever it is, I have needs. <laughs> but the heart here, don't miss the heart. The heart is this. The master's house is the priority of my life. All right. We always obey. And here's another point. Uh, I have no belongings. Everything I have is the master's. In Acts 4.32, no one claimed. 32, not 23. No one claimed. Sorry, I'll read it from my notes because you're going to take a while to find that one. No one claimed, Acts 4.32, no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. 
In other words, you're also in the master's house. And I don't own my things and you don't own yours. So we share what we have because, well, I don't own anything. What's in your fridge is mine. And what's in my fridge is yours because you're owned by him like I am. And here's the thing. If I put the master's house first, then he looks after my house. In Colossians 4 verse 1, Paul writes to masters and he, he tells them something which is beautiful as a lens on how God looks after us. He says, masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. In other words, even a, a Christian slave master must treat his slave well. And here's the thing, God treats us well. If we seek his kingdom, he looks after our kingdom. And I was thinking, we were chatting with the MC the other day. I remember as a, you know, when, as a young Christian, I realized these things. We realized these things. And uh, we came to the Lord and I mean, it was, it was one of those crazy things where, Lord, I'm not here to earn money. Uh, career is a very Western concept. Uh, I, I might do certain things. I might be a tent maker for a while, but I am not called to do that. I'm called to be, you know, I'm going to care for my house, but my primary purpose is the master's house. So when we got married, and this is why they took a while to let us get married, I had nothing. I had nothing. I knew the master had called me to serve him like this, but that door hadn't opened. So I was waitering at the time, and MC works as a public relations officer at a, at a community chest, basically a charity organization, trying to raise money for underprivileged people and kids and stuff. And I remember when we came to the church, all that we had belonged to the master, which means our salary when we got it. I mean, we just attend as his at least. So we. And I remember that meant, and I'm saying this because I think it's relevant for some of us, I remember that meant for us, we gave our tent even though we couldn't afford to live then. And so we couldn't afford to rent a house in those days. Not buy a house, rent a house. So what happened is somebody in the church said they had a big garden. And I had a combi. So we moved into the garden and lived in the combi for a few months. Because we couldn't afford more. Because the master's house was our priority. Then, and I, I need to say this. Don't get caught up in world battles. I'm here for the master's house. She's here for the master's house. Then when we finally came on staff at church, my salary was so low that uh, we couldn't afford it. This was in apartheid days, okay? So it was black and white areas. As a whitey, you didn't want to live on the other side of the tracks. We couldn't afford to stay in a white area when we could afford rental. So we, we moved into a township, full-time in ministry now. And then, and then we led two people to the Lord. Nikki Carstens is now an elder in Sunningdale PM, and a guy called Neil Lloyd, who we actually tried to get a hold of yesterday again. They both got saved out of drugs, and they had no work. And so, well, we had enough money at that point. We moved out of the township into a very poor, very small area, and we had a very small house, one-bedroom uh, bedroom, like one, you know when the kitchen's like, and then the lounge, you sit and you, 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 you're touching the legs of the person across from you, and there's one toilet and bathroom, that's it. Our, our room, our, our bedroom was so small, we couldn't fit a proper size king, you couldn't fit a king, like, not even a queen size, double was the maximum you could go, and then you couldn't open the door properly to get in. That's how small the house was, and we had two guys 
who had led to the Lord who lived with us, had no income. The problem was I could at that time only afford rent and tithe. So I got my, my salary and I tithed 10th and I paid my rent and I was like, I got no money for water. I got no money for food. I got nothing. I got no money for petrol. I got nothing. But we were going to serve the master. So we had two other men who we now had to feed as well, not just us. And I remember not telling people what we were in at that time. And coming home so often praying, MC and I were just, Lord, there's nothing. There's nothing. Come home and there'd be packets on our front door. Someone had dropped food for us. And we would feast with these guys with food that came from we did not know where. In that time, and here's the, the goodness of the master, I can't afford, I mean, that we got nothing. And I decided that one day I wanted to go sailing. I wanted a Hobie Cat, which is a sailing boat. Not a big one, but it's, when you've got nothing, it's... And I said, Lord, yeah, I'd love a Hobie Cat. And a week later, someone walks up to me and says, I feel like God's told me to give you a Hobie Cat. I didn't tell anyone. And we actually lived blessed through that time because we put the master's house first. The master looked after our house. And today... We live in the blessing of God because we put the master's house first. Um, coming to a land, one of the great dangers of the end times is the Bible says it will be an increase of bad doctrines. And we read specifically what kind of doctrines those will be. And I want to emphasize because I think this thing that I'm touching on is one of the bad, this lack of understanding is one of the dangers of the end times church. In 2 Peter 2, 1 to 3, Peter writes, is apostle of Jesus, you know Peter, and he, he tells us about an end times deception that's going to come. And he says this, just as there were false prophets among the people. So in the Old Testament, Israel went astray when the prophets got up and spoke lies. So that, that happened then. So there will be false teachers among you, the church. Okay, so here's, he's looking forward. Will be. In the end times, there's going to be a lot of false teachers. And that, that, what they're going to do is they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. You won't see it. It'll look like the gospel. It'll look like Jesus. But it's secretly somehow you're missing something. And this is what the doctrine will be. Even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Bringing swift destruction on the church. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. You wonder why the church is like it is? He's just told us. The doctrine that he hits, and it's interesting, go back, to the, go back to the one. The doctrine that he hits is denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. The primary doctrine that's going to bring deception to the end time church will be that Christ is, doesn't have to be your Lord. The word sovereign Lord is despotes, where you get the word despot from. It literally means the master or owner of a slave, the highest authority in the individual's life. Ruler, master. In other words, you can be a Christian and not make him Lord. You can be a Christian and live as a servant, not as a slave. This will be the end times deception. Do you see it? <laughs> so how many of you think of yourself as a slave to God? How many of you think my life is mine, my family? Or do you... In other words, where you where you at in, in this picture? The word Lord, denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, again, you've got the language of slavery, 
bought them. The word normally used is kurios. It's master, absolute ruler over a slave. And so we see what true salvation is in Romans 10, verse 9 to 10. Again, Paul's letter to the Romans. Here's how you know you're saved. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is kurios, master. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. So faith does something in us. It produces that understanding that I am no longer my own. I was bought. I was a slave to sin. Now I'm a slave to God. And so I don't live for me anymore. I live for the master. And I live for the master's house. I was thinking when we came to plant Josh Jen, one more story. I remember you heard what salary I was earning. Okay. So it got a bit better towards the end, but I'm talking a bit better. We didn't have enough. But we managed to scrounge and save because we knew we were going to plant Josh Jen, God had told us. And so we saved 10,000 rand, which was like huge for us. It was like 10,000 bucks. And the week before we came to plant Josh Jen, in January 29, we, came to, we planted. The week before we came, the elders of the church I was in that were sending me out got up and said this. Guys, we are trusting God for an extension on our building. We're going to build a coffee shop so people can hang out at the back. And so we're asking that you would give money to the church. And I remember thinking this. Thank you, Jesus. Ching, I'm on my way out. It's their problem. It's not mine. And the master said this to me. You know that 10,000 rand? And I remember thinking, no, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> this is all that we have to live on, master. We have nothing else. The money that I'm earning in PE doesn't cover my rent in Cape Town. Master, that 10,000 rand will keep us alive for at least three months. And I said, Lord, you have to speak to Ems. And she walks out the meeting. I haven't said a thing to her. And she says, honey, you know that 10,000 rand? And I was like, the master spoke to us. And so he gave that 10,000 rand that we laid it at the elders' feet. And we left it to build a coffee shop that we would never enjoy. And came to Cape Town with nothing. With nothing. My salary paid my rent. And I could afford to tithe. And then I had nothing again. That's how we planted Josh Jam. And look at us. Look at us. Look what the master did. As we put his kingdom first. I am blessed. I am blessed financially. I am blessed relationally. The master has poured out blessing upon us. You see, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart, you'll be saved. It's so difficult to do this that 1 Corinthians 12 verse 3 says this. Listen to this. No one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Now, if you go ask a lot of Christians, is Jesus Lord? That's a yes, but is he? You see, when the Bible says this, it means the word kurios. Jesus, no one can say, Jesus is my master and I'm his slave. Unless the Spirit of God has worked in their heart. That they've seen the, the, what we've just seen. And they've believed. And in gratefulness, they, like Paul, can stand up and say, I'm Paul, I'm Andrew, a slave to God. I am not my own. 
I was bought at a price. Other, James, uh, how many of you know James Hudson Taylor? He was one of the great missionaries about just over 100 or 200 years ago. He said this, either Jesus is Lord of all, or he's not your Lord at all. Either he's Lord of all. Is he Lord of your wallet? Is he Lord of your career? Is he Lord of where you live? I, I wouldn't be in South Africa if it wasn't for my master. I would have bailed. But I'm not my own. I'm not my own. I belong to him. And that's not because I'm in full-time ministry. That's just because I'm saved. That's what it means. But if you confess him as Lord and believe in your heart, you will be saved. Are you with me? Remember, we're either a slave to sin or a slave to God. And then God, who is a good master, and I want us to end on this. He is an incredibly good, kind master. And he says, seek my house, I'll look after yours. But in John 15, 14 to 15, he says something so profound. How many of you know that one of the other things God calls us is friends? Jesus said, you are my friends. If... <laughs> If you do what I command, I no longer call you slaves, doulos, because a slave does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything I've learned from the Father. I've made known to you. What friendship is like it? Huh? A meddler, you can be my friend. As long as you obey everything, I tell you. <laughs> The prince of the foundation of how this works is master. And then the master looks at you and he says, because you call me master, come and sit at my table. Come, I'll teach you how to live your life. I will live in you. I'll live with you. I will teach you how to survive. I'll teach you how to break free from sin and slavery to sin. And I will work with you your whole life until on the last day. I'll present you before me as a son. And you will rule and reign with me for eternity. And I'll call you friend even now. If your heart posture is, Master, I'll obey you in everything. Then, he says, I'll call you friend. And I'll reveal the mysteries of the Father to you. The foundation of this thing is Lord Jesus Christ. And so is he your Lord. Is he king of your life? Have you confessed Jesus Christ is truly Lord and Lord of all? Is there some part of you that's not yielded? Some part of you that still lives for you? Some part of you that thinks you can do this as a servant? Well, I'm a bit uncomfortable with that one, Master. It's been a long day. I think I'm going to feed myself tonight. Or is it, Master? Master, your will. And I remember walking that out with Ems. He gave me my wife. Master, you're good. And then it looked like she was going to die on a number of occasions. And I remember getting angry with the master. How can you take my wife? And the master said to me, basically this paraphrase, am I master or not? And I remember saying, master, you can take her. It won't change the way I'll serve you. 
And I held my daughter in my hands. Promise of God. And she died in my hands. And I cried out, Master. And I realized, Master, even if you take my daughter, I'll serve you. And it's been like that at every part of our lives. Master. Master. My daughter's now turning 17. I can't believe it. My wife has got kidneys finally. <laughs> but you know, whether he did or didn't, it would change nothing. Because I'm only a slave. I know what he did for me. I know how he purchased me. I know that I am not my own. I was bought at a price. Master, have your way in me. And until this gets into the fabric of who we are, we will never be the church that he's looking for. The plumb line will look up against our lives. And the master will say, I don't know you. Because you never made me Lord. You never bowed your knee. You never truly be, let me be God. You never trusted me enough to actually let me look after you. Try to find your life and so you lost it. But if you lost your life for my sake, you'd find it. The master's inviting us and he's saying, you're either a slave to sin or you're a slave to me. I know who I've chosen. Thank you, master, for what you've done for me.